There's an old hymn that uh, I love called The Love of God is Greater Far uh, that has a verse in it about the magnificence of God and how impossible he is to describe. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And essentially what that means is if we had an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of writers and an infinite amount of ink, we still wouldn't be able to describe God in his entirety. Well, today I've got 19 minutes to try and capture the character of God, so let's go. Let's see what we can pack into that time. And, and it doesn't help that I've got a passage that has been described by the theologian Richard Baucom as one of the most important in all of Scripture. So it's a, it's a big task we, we have today, and I just want to draw out some of the, the magnificence and the beauty of God from this passage. And thankfully, we have a whole series on the unchanging character of God coming up as well. So the passage uh, that we're chatting about today is from uh, Exodus 33 and 34, and the context of it is um, Israel have been rescued from slavery, and in, in this process they have witnessed the, uh, the miracles of God, the wrath of God, the favor of God. They've seen seas parted, they've seen um, uh, ten plagues on Egypt, uh, they've been brought into the desert, and they've just formed this covenant with God. They've heard the Ten Commandments, and surely this is it for Israel. Now they're set. They're on their way. They're the people of God. Everything's going to be great from here on in. Except that isn't what happens. They immediately pretty much betray God. They form a golden calf um, and start worshiping that. They have a boozy party, and uh, uh, the covenant is almost immediately broken by the Israelites. And this is where our passage happens. Uh, Moses doesn't know what's going to happen. He's going up Mount Sinai again to talk to God, to plead for Israel. And that's, that's where this uh, passage starts. So that's where our story takes place. And I've asked my wife, Natalie, to read the passage for us. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, and my, but my face must not be seen. 
The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets, the first ones. I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and the herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Thank you. God, would you come and speak to us? through this passage, would you reveal more of your glorious, merciful character to us today? Amen. Wow. In the face of a nation that had so thoroughly betrayed him, God shows mercy. The the entire preaching series could be on this one passage because so much of God is unlocked from it. and, and it, it has echoes throughout the rest of Scripture. But there are two major characteristics that I want to highlight today. Firstly, that God is glorious. And secondly, that God is merciful. So firstly, God is glorious. Um, Moses says, you know, your presence has to go with us. I, Israel can't go anywhere without your presence. We are a people defined by your presence. So please have mercy. And God says, my presence will go with you. And astonished by this mercy, Moses says, please, I want to see your glory. I want to see your goodness. And God in his kindness says, okay, I'll, I'll show you my glory, but just a part of it. Moses was not able to see the, the fullness of God's glory. It would have been too much for him. Uh, it would have been... Um, a bit like standing next to the sun. You know how we can't look at the sun because it'll burn our eyes? This isn't just that. This is like standing next to the sun. And God says, I, I can't show you my face. I'll hide you in a rock. You'll see my back. And then you'll taste some of my glory and goodness. That's how powerful and glorious God is here. And, and even just this sort of limited experience of the glory of God left Moses with a shining face, we read later on. So glorious, so majestic, so kingly is is the presence of God here that Moses leaves with a radiant face. God is so much more glorious than we could fully understand. And yet sometimes, friends, I think we risk downplaying that glory I think we occasionally risk casualness in our relationship with God. There's a phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, uh, which essentially means that when something becomes so familiar to us, it stops being special. It loses uh, some of 
its impact on us because, it, you know, it's just, it's just there. So um, I, was, I was down in the south of England for a wedding, and I was like, oh, wow, a red kite. And this, this beautiful bird was soaring above us, and it's the only bird I know how to recognize. I'm not into bird watching. I just happen to know forked tail. I was like, fairly sure that's a red kite. And I, I'd never seen one before, and I was, I was amazed. And the person I was chatting to says, yeah, we have a couple in our garden. And she just wasn't impressed because she sees red kites all the time. Same, if you've ever been on safari, first time you see a zebra, you're like, a zebra. 27th time you see a zebra, you're like, zebra. Uh, you know, we get the same with Edinburgh. You know, we live in the greatest city in the UK, possibly the greatest city in the world. Don't listen to people from London. They know nothing. Edinburgh is the greatest city in the UK. And yet... You know, and people travel all around, from all around the world to see the city. And, and we treat things like, you know, the castle and Arthur's seat. We just shrug. Familiarity can breed contempt. And when it comes to God, sometimes our familiarity with uh, what we hear about God can just lead us to, to that casualness, to a bit of a shrug, perhaps even to indifference. Maybe even this sermon... And, you, you know, you've heard me say, I'm going to talk about how God's glorious. You're like, yeah, I know. We're talking about the king of creation here. We should never let our familiarity with God tempt us into indifference towards just how majestic he is. I think there are three reasons that perhaps we, in, in 21st century Britain, can end up treating God with perhaps indifference, ways we can lose our reverence and our awe for the God that Moses wasn't even allowed to look at face on. Uh, part of it is just our culture has a bit of an anti-establishment, anti-hierarchical thing that means, you know, we value authenticity above anything else and we prize a relational approach to God which is great. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to talk later on about uh, how we can relate to God and, and experience that intimacy with him. But um, the, the, the movement of churches that Kings is a part of has its history in kind of a deconstructionism. We threw out ritual, we threw out the formality because we wanted to emphasize uh, that God is someone we can know personally. And we wanted to emphasize the, the personal individual relationship that we can have and 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 at that point ritual had become kind of a bit meaningless across much of the UK and for many people it was a dead ritual that, that actually didn't mean anything to them and and we know from the bible that God despises empty meaningless ritual and I think that's a good thing I think you know we are supposed to have a personal relationship with God and we shouldn't uh, I'm, I'm not calling us to return to sort of smells and bells, high church kind of practice at the moment. But our way of doing church, our sort of easygoing, authentic way of doing church carries a risk with it that we, you know, that, that casualness, that indifference creeps in and we don't make time for reverence and awe. So that's one risk. The second risk is just much more universal, the pandemic. Uh, for many of us, this has been an absolute slog. I know one or two people who are like, yeah, I've had a great time. But for most of us, this has just been a bit of a trudge. And there are, there are aspects of it, 
particularly if you're uh, in the kind of group of the population that have been at home for most of it, um, that has a numbing effect. It's hard to feel awe and reverence when, you know, your, your job, your travel, your entertainment, your church are in the space of about two or three rooms, you know. Uh, without uh, meeting with the people of God or being out in God's creation, awe and reverence just become, I think, much more difficult things to tap into. Uh, you know, we, we, it, just, it just has this cumulative numbing effect that I think, uh, for me personally, has, has made approaching God with this sort of awe, the fear of God. You know, Proverbs says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's made that a harder part of, of my relationship with God. Um, and, you know, we have, because we've been in our flats or houses this whole time, again, we've prioritized the more personal, intimate aspects of our relationship with God, which I think has been necessary. But again, it's just a risk, something to be aware of. And the third thing is technology. And again, technology, I'm not a technophobe, it's a good thing. It's made this past year and a half a whole lot more bearable. You know, what would the pandemic have been if we didn't have technology? Um, but it's just worth bearing in mind that all of the major tech companies of today, uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, um, Apple, they make money from maintaining your attention. It is an economy of attention. The more that they can keep you using their services, uh, the, the more money they can make, essentially. So that's why YouTube prioritizes autoplay and, like, maybe you'd like this to watch this. And I'm thinking, yes, YouTube, I really would like to watch that. I ended up watching a 20-minute video on the bossa nova origins of a TikTok meme the other day. You know, I don't know how I got there, but I did. Um, apologies to my employers. Uh, uh, you know, Facebook keeps you online by making you angry and finding other people who are angry about the same thing as you, so you can all be angry together. I'm not saying throw technology away. I'm just saying be aware that there are things in, uh, in you know, 2021 in Britain that are just looking to kind of numb you to, to awe and reverence, things that are looking to detract from that sense of the spiritual and the sacred that we are called to experience. And there are, um, I, I would, it has this cumulative effect, and I would love it if we as a church were to eagerly pursue reverence for God, to, to seek awe, at his might and majesty as we enter into a new season. Remember, fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Now is a time for reawakening, to let things that were dormant in us stir once again, to, to become worshippers once more. That's why this preaching series is so good. But God is infinite. Sunday mornings are not. I've just clocked the time. Um, we... So we need to take time ourselves throughout the week to, to seek out ways to just rediscover reverence for the glory and majesty of God. I don't know what that looks like. It's probably different for each one of us, but I'm excited to go on that journey. Perhaps it's just taking a moment of silence in your prayer time. Before you come on to ask God for things, just take a moment to reflect 
on the majesty of God. Maybe you just need to read the great passages of scripture about the, the God who is seated enthroned above the universe, who created the universe with a word, the God who can uh, establish governments and tear them down. Maybe we need to find the art and the music and the, the pockets of nature in Edinburgh that just cause us to look heavenwards. Maybe we need to read some of the great writers of Christian history who can help us to have that, that perspective of the glory of God. But let's, let's be intentional about this. Let's be intentional about seeing this vision of God, the God who is so glorious that, that he has to hide Moses in a rock because, because he is so majestic. He's a king. He is a king. And we sometimes, we just need to remember that when we approach him. But God is also merciful that we see in this passage. And this, this glory that we talk about doesn't exclude the mercy and the relational intimacy of God. It just makes it all the more astonishing that a glorious God would know us and would show mercy to us. It just makes it all that much more incredible. And when God does show himself to Moses, he, he describes his character him, to him in this revelation of who God is that has echoes throughout the rest of Scripture. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This should debunk any theory that God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. Here we see a gracious, merciful God who is abounding in steadfast love. He's a God of grace here. He's the same God as he was in Genesis 1 as he is in Revelation 22. He is an unchanging God. And, and after this, we see different characters in the Bible use this passage to speak to God and say, I know your character. We see it in the Psalms. The same phrasing, turning up and again, uh, uh, turning up over and over again. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You've probably heard those phrases and sung them. Even Jonah uses them as his excuse for why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He's called to go and preach to the people of Nineveh so that they might turn away from their sin. And he says, I didn't want to because I know that you're slow to anger and you forgive wickedness and I didn't want you to forgive these people. And he quotes that back to God. So we see it turn up again and again. But Moses didn't know that he was necessarily going to forgive them because look at the extent of their betrayal. It is like someone committing adultery on their wedding night. That's, that's the extent of Israel's sin here. So how much more wondrous is God's forgiveness that he would choose to forgive his people? And, and that should speak to you now because no one is too far gone for the mercy of God because he is abounding in steadfast love. He will forgive sin and wickedness and rebellion. So it doesn't matter what your rebellion is today, what, how, how wretched you might feel coming in or listening to this online. 
God is compassionate and gracious. That is his character. And that's why he is able to forgive, because he is abounding in steadfast love. And look at these words. They're relational. Why does he forgive Moses? He says, well, because, because I know you. I know you, and I have shown you favor. And all of these terms, love, compassion, grace, slow to anger, they're all terms that are defined by God's relationship to other people. The glorious God wants to know people, and he expresses his love through relationship. Now, he is a God of justice. That's what that, that, uh, the second half of it is about. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And sin has consequences. That's why we see that the sins of parents get met upon the children because people get caught in cycles. And, and you see it so often where, where the sins of parents get reflected in the sins of the children. A, a passage that makes me glad that I'm not yet a parent because there's some pressure there. But, but God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. But where God punishes a few generations. His, his mercy is for thousands of generations. His mercy extends so much further than his punishment, and he can break cycles. He can intervene in desperate situations and show his loving, compassionate nature. So that mercy is available to you today. It's the, it's the same God, the same character. We, we can all relate to, to the stupidity of Israel here, where we taste something of the goodness of God and then the next moment where we find ourselves rebelling against him in one way or another. And it's all expressed in the person of Jesus. It all culminates in him. Both the glory of God and the mercy of God are made knowable, made possible through the person of Jesus. In John 1, the passage that's famous from uh, Christmas carol services, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. There is a line that says, we have seen his glory. We've seen the glory of God. What wasn't possible for Moses is possible for us because we see it in the person of Jesus. All of that glory of God, all of that unknowable, vast glory of God is expressed in this person of Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, how? If, if Moses wasn't able to see him, how was that expressed in one person? Well, well exactly. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. This vast, glorious, kingly God who is the, the king of the universe becomes a person. In a way, he, he steps down from glory to take on humanity for the sake of his mercy for us. But in doing so, he is glorified. You see, glory and mercy are not two mutually exclusive things where it's like, well, he can't be merciful because he's glorious, or he can't be glorious because he's merciful, or even on the most wretched of sinners. No, these, he is merciful because he is glorious, and he is glorious because he is merciful. And we see that all expressed in the person of Jesus, so that all we need to do is put our trust in him. To, to accept the forgiveness of Jesus and to choose to follow him. And then we get to experience the glory of God. We get to see it. We get to walk in it. We get to know this mercy, this relational, intimate mercy where, Jesus says, where God says, I know you and I have shown you favor. 
Jesus is the perfection and the mercy of God in the form of a person who lived and died so that we might know that glory and that mercy. So, how do we respond? Well, we're going to sing in a second. But I think there are two obvious responses, and you probably fall into one of two categories. One is we need to rediscover reverence for God. And as we sing, maybe you just need to take a moment to sit in stillness, to reflect on this God who, who you know, is so, so glorious. He, he created language so that we might be able to communicate with him, and yet still our language falls short of just how beautiful he is. And maybe you need a fresh experience of his mercy today. Maybe you're coming to him today knowing, knowing that you've fallen short. Maybe you feel like Israel where it's like, oh, I was just in such a good place with God and then I stumbled again. I screwed up once more. We actually heard about the faithfulness of God earlier just before we started worship and, and he is faithful. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. And if that's you, just come before him today and say, God, I've, I've messed up again, but I know that your mercies are new every morning. And speak this passage back to him. Speak the character of God back to him and call on that compassion and that forgiveness once again.